0: Greetings, this is Cody Cook, and you're listening to Cantus Firmus. I wanted to go over today um, some discussion about Romans 13, because it had kind of been in the news somewhat recently. And I wanted to talk about um, what it is and isn't saying. And uh, a lot of the material here that I'm going to be covering is in my new book, Fight the Powers, which you can get on Amazon. And I'll make sure I put a link in the uh, description. Uh, And that's actually uh, free if you want to buy it on Kindle. Uh, from thursday october 11th 2018 through monday october 15th 2018 so if you're listening and it's around that time uh within that time frame you can go right to amazon and get it for free so definitely take advantage of that if you uh if you're listening at the right time so uh so here's what i wanted to talk about um It's rare in our cultural uh, climate today that a debate over biblical interpretation becomes a topic of discussion in major media outlets. It was therefore something of a surprise when Attorney General Jeff Sessions sought to silence evangelical criticism of President Trump's immigration policy by citing Romans chapter 13, sparking a national conversation about this passage. He said, I would cite you too the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained the government for his purposes. Quote. The primary criticism of this citation from Sessions was, interestingly, not that he had misread the passage, although that was discussed, but that its significance in American history is found in its defense of slavery. Does a faithful reading of Romans 13 require that we assent to power at all times, even when it appears to be acting immorally, as it did in its defense of American slavery? And is it always the case that, as White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, it is very biblical to enforce the law, and that, quote, it's a moral policy to follow and enforce the law, end quote. The answer to that question may be found in close readings of the passages which Paul alludes to in this section to support his argument. So Paul writes in chapter 13 that Christians should be subject to the state because authorities are instituted by God and carry the sword to avenge against those who do evil. When taken at face value, this is not an endorsement for blurring the lines between church and state since the preceding verses in chapter 12 distinguish what the state does use force against its enemies from how christians are expected to behave quote beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of god for it is written vengeance is mine i'll repay says the lord do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good that's romans twelve nineteen through 21. so you know starting off here even if we're going to say um that romans 13 gives the state carte blanche There is an interesting point here, which is that it is distinguished from the church in such a way that it is decidedly not Christian. So that is the point that that Paul's making. That's the distinction that Paul's making. So then the the question is, is, is this passage actually giving the state carte blanche to do whatever it wants? And on that, I think it should be observed that Paul's statement about God's vengeance here is a quotation from Deuteronomy 32, 35. In this passage, God is speaking about punishing the pagan nations for their wickedness and mocking their gods who could not protect them. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. For their rock is not as our rock, our enemies are by themselves. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. That's Deuteronomy 32. 28 through 35, with a couple little gaps in there. The immediate context of the verse that Paul cited speaks of God executing vengeance over disobedient and immoral pagan kingdoms, like Rome was in Paul's day, meaning that Paul was quoting a passage which seems to say the opposite of what Sessions claimed Paul's point was. Beyond this direct quotation of Deuteronomy 32 and the immediately preceding context, the most salient verses in chapter 13 themselves use terminology from this section in Deuteronomy, but flip the way they're used. So in the Greek Septuagint Translation of Deuteronomy 32:41 through 42 God's hand holds fast to judgment, or krimatos. His sword, Machiron, will devour the flesh of the rulers, Archonton, of pagan enemies. But in Romans 13, 2-4, those who resist pagan rulers will incur judgment, Prima. Since rulers are contests, do not bear the sword, machiron, in vain. These words are used both in um, Deuteronomy 32:41 through 42 and Romans 13:2 through 4, which suggests that Paul is seeing Deuteronomy 32 as significant to the point that he's making here. I think this gives us some permission to to widen our scope a little further to look at the overall message of deuteronomy 32. if paul seems to be using the language there and he has directly quoted it um, to to make his point there may be something in the original context that can help us to get his message so in earlier verses uh, 8 through 9 we read about what it is that distinguishes these pagan nations from israel Quote, "...when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, and he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage." That's Deuteronomy 32, 8-9. through 9. Now, in Old Testament usage, the term sons of God refers to angelic beings. In other words, Deuteronomy 32, 8-9 seems to be communicating that God has placed lesser spiritual powers over the nations, but chose Israel as his special people. Elsewhere we read, and Paul would have understood, that these powers were corrupted. In other words, to support his claim that the earthly powers only punish evildoers as God's representatives... Paul appealed to an Old Testament passage which taught that the nations were hopelessly corrupted under the superintendence of fallen angelic beings, and that God would judge them one day soon. However, it would be premature of accusing Paul of such great incompetence, as those who hold the authoritarian view have unwittingly done. Is it instead possible that Paul was speaking in coded language to knowledgeable Christians who understood their Bibles, even as he hid the meaning of what he was saying from eavesdropping hostile earthly powers? Was Paul's real point that Christians are not actually subjects of the empire, but that the kingdom in which they had their true citizenship would one day destroy the corrupt kingdoms of men for mishandling their sacred responsibilities? There are more clues that Paul may have been intending this section to be read in light of what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 32. For instance, the idea that, quote, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, end quote, and, quote, do what is good and you will receive their approval, end quote, not only sounds hopelessly naive, but it also flies in the face of what Paul himself knew and experienced. To begin with, Paul was a Jew in a land which had been occupied by a series of pagan oppressors. In addition, the epistle to the Romans was written in the mid-50s, meaning that Paul's experience of being unjustly beaten with rods by magistrates in Philippi, see Acts chapter 16, and his public shaming of those same magistrates was more than five years in the past. Not only that, but prior to his conversion, he had been given the authority to oppress and kill Christians, a charge which he now understood to be wicked. After his conversion, he would have understood that his sinless Lord and Savior had been crucified by the very rulers whom he claimed, quote, are not a terror to good conduct, end quote. He was also a Jew who knew his Bible. He was familiar with stories of pharaohs and Persian bureaucrats seeking to annihilate his people, of pagan kings being used by God to punish the Jewish people, but who went further than God had desired, and of the angelic sons of God who had used their power to persecute the poor, such as in Psalm 82. In a somewhat parallel passage in 1 Peter, we have an acknowledgement that the state is tasked with doing good, but often does what is evil. 1 Peter 2 13 and 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So we see here an echo of Paul in Romans 13. But he says in the next chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And so, uh, what Peter seems to be doing is almost like reversing Paul's order. So Paul, in Romans twelve, talks about how Christians are supposed to um, always be peaceful and always do the right thing. Then sort of moves moves forward to talk about the the state being on the side of those who do good conduct. Well, Peter kind of reverses it. He says, "Well, the state is there to uh, to you know praise those who do good and punish those who do evil, but at the same time, uh, you know sometimes they don't do that." <laughs> And, and not only is this notion just you know, in Peter, it's clearly found in Paul as well. In 1 Corinthians 6, he describes those in authority as unrighteous. Uh, quote, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? There's no doubt that that Paul was aware of the fact that power is often corrupt and does not do what it's supposed to do, both because of human ambition and demonic influence. This suggests one of two possibilities, though they aren't mutually exclusive. Paul may have been expressing a best-case scenario of what rulers ought to do, though often don't, or, as T.L. Carter suggested, he may have been writing ironically. Carter establishes the use of irony as a writing practice in the ancient world, and also gives a rationale for its use in this passage, which is to communicate a message to a specific audience, which the authorities, if they had gotten hold of the letter, would not have perceived. The authorities would have been flattered by this rose-tinted portrait of themselves. The many in Paul's intended audience would have known that in practice, and indeed even in the passages which Paul is citing as proof texts, those in power often don't behave in such a way. Carter also notes that defenders of the traditional view of this passage highlight parallels between it and the deuterocanonical Book of Wisdom, which claims that dominion is given to rulers by God. But if this is the inspiration for Paul's words here, it ought to be read in its context. Quote, Because authority was given to you by the Lord, and sovereignty by the Most High, who shall probe your works and scrutinize your counsels. Because, though you were ministers of his kingdom, you did not judge rightly, and you did not keep the law, nor walk according to the will of God. Terribly and swiftly he shall come against you, because severe judgment awaits the exalted. For the lowly may be pardoned out of mercy, but the mighty shall be mightily put to the test. That's Wisdom 6, 3-6. That Paul would allude to yet another writing to seemingly support a contention which it actually contradicts provides further evidence that Paul was writing with his tongue in his cheek. The state may in fact serve a divinely appointed purpose, but in practice it fails to live up to this calling. Should Christians then fight the powers with the implements of military battle? Not at all. Our weapons are not carnal, as Paul tells us elsewhere, and we would do well to treat our enemies, including those in power who oppress us, precisely as Paul told us to in Romans 12:19 through 21 to overcome evil with good and leave room for God's wrath. Indeed, if the oppressed Christians had behaved as their enemy did, retaliating with force, what good would this rebellion have done? They had no hope of destroying the empire with force, but more than that, as Carter reminds us, it would have, this is a quote, it would have entailed being overcome by evil rather than overcoming evil with good. End quote. If it was the duty of the magistrate to reward those who do good, and he instead punished them, he would likewise be punished by God for abusing his authority. If the Christian whom he oppressed responded with love to his oppression and threats, this could shame him into changing his behavior. And if not, it would only compound the judgment against him. In any case, the responsibility of the Christian was to keep doing good regardless of the consequences, even if the laws of man forbade them from doing so. Uh, As as, uh, Peter says in um, Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. In summation, we have three facts which militate against an authoritarian reading of this passage. First of all, Paul knew Scripture well enough to not quote passages which clearly contradicted his argument. Two, Paul's own experiences and knowledge of corrupted power contradicted the notion that the state was only a terror to the one doing evil. Paul would have known that was false. Three, he was writing to an audience which was an oppressed class, most of them poor, many of them Jews, all of them part of a new religion which both Rome and the Jewish authorities were suspicious of and had mistreated. Therefore, Paul could not have meant in Romans 12-13 through that the magistrate always does what is good, or even that he should always be obeyed. In point of fact, the external literature which Paul alludes to teaches that God will one day judge the state for mishandling its duties. In the meantime, the responsibility of Christians is to be beyond reproach, eschewing violence for love that either shames the oppressor or compounds the coming judgment against him. And... This is what I think is troubling about um, Sessions, Sessions' comments. Sessions sort of says with a smirk on his face, if you watch the video anyway, um, that the Apostle Paul gave a clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained the government for his purposes. In context, he's talking about laws that were separating uh, children, uh, children of uh, immigrants, legal immigrants, from their parents. Um, many of those children uh, months later have not been returned to their parents. Um, and you know, the conditions obviously have been psychologically and, and, you know, damaging and physically, uh, undesirable. Um, and so to say with a smirk on your face, well, you you know, you're supposed to obey the government and obey the laws. If Paul is is, is actually saying that God is going to judge the state for its mishandling of its duties. This should not be stated with a smirk. Those in government should not quote Romans 13 with a twinkle in their eye, but with, I mean, you know, fear and trepidation in their hearts as, uh, as, as that the the passage in wisdom says the lowly may be pardoned out of mercy, but the mighty shall be mightily put to the test. I hope that's helpful for y'all. Like I said, Fight the Powers is available on Amazon. And uh, if you are listening at the right time, it is free right now So uh, to download on Kindle anyway. Paperback still is going to cost you a few bucks, but also fairly reasonably priced. So I thank you and uh, blessings. I'll hope to talk to you soon.